Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast. Talking about book two, chapter 13. Got the Australian Open on in the background. I feel like Bill Burr doing a podcast, watching sports at the same time. The Australian Open's probably the only sport that I watch. That's pretty awesome. What's your opinion of Billabin's advice to Andrew as opposed to galloping off to the army? He tells Andrew, look at the... Hey, wait a minute. I think I've got the wrong thing. It seems to be the discussion prompts from yesterday. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Oh, I think I've just... Yeah, that's what I've done. <laughs> I didn't update the discussion prompts. Oops, I've posted the same discussion prompts two days in a row. Haikevakava he, says, It looks like the prompts are not updated to today's chapter. Yep, sorry, my bad. Regardless, my favourite line from the chapter was this insight into Andrew's thoughts. He saw that his championship to the doctor's wife and her queer trap might expose him to what he dreaded more than anything in the world, ridicule. I think it's another remnant of Bolkonsky Sr. in Prince Andre. Som Nam Taborosorum, what's with all these names today, said, I was a bit uncertain as to how this would invite ridicule. He is championing this woman. For what possible reason would he be mocked? I think he's just because he's getting caught up in a, a ridiculous uh, squabble. You know, the whole affair is a dic- ridiculous. So um, he kind of just doesn't want to be associated with it. He steps in and does the right thing, but he's thinking, oh, you know, what am I getting involved for? This is not what I'm here to do. Something like that. Warren Kovafifi said the descriptions of all the dead horses, people wading through mud up to their knees, chaos, hunger and despair of the army makes me so glad that I never had to experience war during this time in history or any war. It just sounds awful. Not to mention that Kutuzov is more or less expecting 90% of the detachment to be killed in battle. I'm confused once again by the geography. If I'm understanding correctly, Andre meets up with the army near Etzeldorf, which according to Google Maps is some 120 miles or 200 kilometres from Bruno, Bruno, Brunau, and then Nesvitsky says they spend the night in his name, Czech Republic, which is relatively close to Brunau. How did Andre get there so quickly? How are we to assume that his that this is many days later since he left Brunau? Turing tested thirty seven says it's probably safe to assume it's been at least a few days. The Tabor Bridge stuff happened on November sixteen. And they will eventually end up in Austerlitz, near Bernau, on December 2nd. Um, Angel of Alchi said this. Once again, I was a little confused with the setting. Was there a traffic jam and the wagon with the lady was trying to pass? Why was the officer whipping the soldier trying to pass the traffic? I just can't fit these things for some reason. I don't know if it's my fault for trying too hard to make every little sense out of the writing, or if I should just go with it. Warren Kovafi says the same. Uh, I'm thinking along the same lines as you. I believe the drunken officer with the whip is trying to lead the baggage train and keep them in order amidst the chaos on the road. The car gets too far ahead. I'm guessing it's just so disorganized and chaotic that it can't be helped. And the officer just starts whipping them because he's drunk and exasperated. And the whip is striking the doctor's wife as well. The whole thing just sounds like a mess. Yeah. Summary here from Zukov17. He says... Andre rides back. The Russian army is in completely complete chaos and is a total mess. A drunk officer is terrorizing, among others, the wife of a doctor. 
Andre steps up, yells at the drunk officer and eventually asserts his dominance over the situation. Andre runs into Nezvitsky, then into Kutuzov, who invites him into his carriage. Kutuzov laments about how many soldiers he's about to lose and Andre, looking at Kutuzov's missing eye, a battle scar, realises that Kutuzov can talk about war however he wants. Alright, let's keep reading. Let Oh, hang on. Can we keep reading? I mean, we can always keep reading. But I need to find the correct chapter. Chapter 14. While I do that, Hemming... Um, what am I saying? Oh, while I do that, visit. Um, Patreon.com slash the Hemingway list to support the podcast if you want to. Chapter 14 goes like this. By November 1st, Kutuzov knew his army was properly fucked. One of his spies had given him some info, and that was that. The spy told him that the French had crossed the bridge in Vienna and were advancing in massive droves upon Kutuzov's line of communication with the troops that were arriving from Russia. If Kutuzov decided to stay at Krems, Napoleon's army of 150,000 motherfuckers would cut him off completely and surround his ratchet army of 40,000 and make a total mac of him. If Kutuzov decided to abandon the road connecting him with the backup arriving from Russia, he would have to march off-road into the unfamiliar Bohemian mountains, defending himself against a bajillion French pricks and abandoning all hope of rendezvousing with Buxhalden. If Kutuzov decided to rip back down the road from Krems to Olmutz and meet up with the troops coming from Russia, he'd risk being held up on that road by the French who'd cross the Vienna Bridge and he'd have all his baggage wagons and luggage crap bogging him down while trying to beat back a force triple the size of his attacking from two sides. Despite how fucked that all sounds, he chose the latter option. The spy reported that the French who'd crossed the Vienna Bridge were advancing by force by forced marches towards Znaim, which was 60 miles away on the course of Kutuzov's retreat. If he could get to Znaim before the French, that would be sick. That would be massive. If the French got there first, they'd stop him there and mack him to oblivion. But to stop the French with his whole army wasn't possible either. The road for the French from Vienna to Znaim was shorter and better than the road for the Russians from Krems to Znaim. The night he found out the news, Kutuzov sent Bagration and his vanguard of 4,000 to the right across the hills from the Krems Znaim road to the Vienna Znaim 1. Bagration was to make this march without resting and to position his vanguard facing Vienna with Znaim behind him and if he was able to cut off the French, he was to delay them as long as possible. Kutuzov took the rest of all his carriages on the road to Znaim. It was a 30-mile march for Bagration's lot, they were hungry, their kit was had it, and the hills they crossed that stormy night had no roads. A third of his men were lost as stragglers, but when Bagration made it to the Vienna Zame Road at Hollebrunn, he arrived a few hours before the French coming from Vienna. Kutuzov and his transport still had a few days of marching ahead of them before they'd reached Zame. Hence Bagration, with his 4,000 hungry and exhausted men, would have to stall the whole arm- enemy army that was swarming his way in Hollebrunn, which was obviously just impossible. But a freak of fate made the impossible possible. You wouldn't believe it, but Murat, feeling cocky that his trick on the Vienna Bridge had worked and he'd taken it without a fight, tried to pull the same shit on the big dog. When Murat Murat came upon Bagration's 
haggard little detachment on the road's name, he stupidly uh, he stupidly assumed it was Kutuzov's whole army. To ensure he could crush it in one smush, he decided to wait for the rest of the French troops who were on their way from Vienna, and with this plan in mind offered a tricksy truce of three days, on condition that both armies should remain in position without moving. Murat declared that negotiations for peace were already proceeding, and that therefore there was no need to fight if they could avoid unnecessary bloodshed. Count Nostitz, the Austrian general occupying the advanced posts, believed Murat's emissary and retired, leaving Bagration's boys very exposed and vulnerable. Another emissary rode to the Russian line to announce the peace negotiations and to offer the Russian army the three days truce. Bagration replied that he wasn't authorised to either accept or refuse a truce and sent his adjutant to Kutuzov to report the offer he'd received. The truce... This truce was Kutuzov's one big chance of gaining the time he dearly needed, giving Bagration's exhausted troops time for a kip and letting the transport and heavy convoys, the retreat of which the French were now unaware of, advance, if but one bit closer to his name. The offer of a truce gave them a very unexpected chance in hell at saving the army. On receiving the news, he wasted no time dispatching Adjutant General Wintzergerode, who was in his service to the enemy camp. Winston Garode was instructed to not only agree to the truce, but also to offer terms of capitulation, and meanwhile Kutuzov sent his adjutants to tell the baggage trains of the entire army to fang it as hard as possible along the Krems's name road. Bagration's rat-shit detachment were left to wait behind, tasked with covering the retreat of the transport and the whole army against an enemy eight times their size. Kutuzov's guesstimate that Murat's shoddy proposals of capitulations would buy his transport some time to escape proved correct. However, he was also correct in guesstimating that Murat's poor judgment would be discovered and corrected. For just as Kutuzov knew Murat's proposals were fake, Napoleon also knew that Kutuzov knew that Murat's proposals were fake. And in turn, Kutuzov knew that Napoleon would know that he knew that Murat's proposals were fake. As soon as Bonaparte, who was at Schonbrunn, 16 miles from Hullabrunn, received Murat's dispatch, with the proposal of a truce and capitulation, he detected a ruse and wrote the following letter to Murat. Schonbrunn, 25th Brumaire, 1805, at 8 o'clock in the morning. To Prince Murat, I have no words to express to you my disappointment. You're in command of only my advanced guard. You have no right to arrange an armistice but without my order. You are causing me to lose the fruits of a campaign. Break the armistice immediately and march on the enemy. Tell him that the general who signed that capitulation had no right to do so, and that no one but the Emperor of Russia has that right. If, however, the Emperor of Russia accepts that proposal, I will accept it too, but it is only a trick. March on. Destroy the Russian army. You are in a position to capture their baggage and artillery. The Russian Emperor's aide-de-camp is an imposter. Officers are nothing when they have no powers. This one had none. The Austrians let themselves be fooled at the crossing of the Vienna Bridge. You are letting yourself be fooled by an aide-de-camp of the Emperor, Napoleon. Bonaparte's adjutant rode full fang ahead with the menacing letter to Murat. 
Bonaparte himself, having a very having very little faith in his own generals, moved with all the guards to the battlefield, afraid of letting a sitting duck victim slip away. And meanwhile, Bagration's 4,000 men were happy as pigs in shit, lighting campfires, resting, drying and warming themselves, making porridge for the first time in three days, and not a single one of them knew or even imagined the shitfire that was coming their way. Alright, there we go. There's a chapter for you. Hope you liked that one. Have your say over at the subreddit, uh, and I'll see you tomorrow.